This is Erin from Ennis Britain. How can I help you? Hey, Erin. I kind of have an issue. It's kind of involved. Need to run it by you. You got a few minutes? Absolutely. What's going on? Okay. So, and stop me if you think you need, I need to back up or anything, but here's, here's kind of the situation. I have a student identified under ED, um, mainly receives her services in the resource room, has an aide with her all day. Okay. You, you get the picture. Yep. Um, so she brought a knife to school. Uh huh. And in bringing the knife to school, when the aide found out about it, Abe tried to grab it from her and received a few cuts, honestly. I mean, the cuts are small, paper cuts, whatever, but they're cuts, right? It shouldn't have happened. Um, I found out that the aide Googled what can be done, and she's actually telling people maybe seriously bodily injury. I love Um, when they're lawyers through Google. That's awesome. (laughs) Right? Google doctors, Google lawyers. Um, And I'm kind of getting a little bit from the district, from my people, that students got to be removed permanently now. So I need some thoughts on that one from you. Absolutely. Thanks. Welcome to On the Call, Ennis Britton's special education team podcast. I am Erin Westendorf-Fortman. And I am Jeremy Neff. And we are ready to dig into this call. So we think phone calls like this are always interesting where uh, it's just a few minor lacerations. <laughs> no big deal. Just a knife, minor details. But I do think when we look at students with discipline or students who are identified under IDEA and we look at disciplining them and we're going through this process, we've talked in, in previous episodes about what does an MDR look like, right? I think everybody has been informed there are these exceptions that exist out there, right, mm-hmm. that we can just use and we skip over the process, right? So we know there's these 45-day exceptions. There's three of them, more or less. There's the that fourth weird infamous one, but that one's all, <laughs> maybe right. again another yeah. topic for another day. But we know these exceptions exist, and so I think we we just try to skip over the process. And, and I think right at the beginning, it's important to highlight what the exception is too. As you're saying, it's not an exception to the process. It's an exception to the implications of a child's behavior being a manifestation of their disability. Inherent to that is you've determined already that it's a manifestation of the child's disability. And that's that's so important to keep in mind what the exception is to. It's at the end of the process, not at the beginning. So you mean we've had to, you have to have held that MDR hearing and mm-hmm. then had that decision, have mm-hmm. all the documentation done, and then this is your, you know, your last stop, your backstop of what you can use after that has been done. Absolutely. So what are they? All right. Well, I mean, we're, we're looking at three basics, as you noted earlier. So weapons is one that comes up quite a bit. Drugs is another one. Uh, unfortunately, it's coming up more and more, I think. And serious bodily injury is one that people bring up quite a bit, but it's probably a lot more than, let's say, the minor lacerations in this phone call. Uh, I don't know if you want to dive into a little bit, uh, let's say weapons. Like, what what does that mean? I mean, so weapon, at least when we look at it from IDEA, right, we're trying to focus someone on that black letter law because when these phone calls do come in, I think that's an important aspect to go back. How is it defined? And I know the attorneys will always say, well, let's break out the binder, right, and let's go ahead and see how it's defined. But at least from the federal level, they refer over to the criminal code with this. So the U.S. criminal code, and it says any weapon, device, instrument, material, or substance 
animate or inanimate. I would like to know which ones are animate. I have never encountered that. <laughs> a German shepherd or right. something. I okay, <laughs> I mean, considered a weapon. I like it. That is used for or is readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury, except it doesn't include a pocket knife with a blade of less than two and a half inches in length. And so I think, you know, we always get people, my favorite is the blade of two and a half inches, just because people are like, well, I have it, I have it. And I've said this a thousand times. Well, if you have it, because then the police will take it after that, please make a copy of it and put a ruler next to it Mm -hmm. on the copy machine. It's the dumbest thing ever, but it does not include the handle. It has to be the blade aspect is two and a half inches. Now, normally between the two of us, I'm the old man when it comes to like how to use technology. You could put it on the copy machine if you like or try and roll it through your mimeograph or or just take out a cell phone. That might work too. But put it by a ruler, right? You know that you've had ones where people have been like, here it is, and it's pictured next to like, I don't know, a quarter or a highlighter. And then you have to size up whether the photo has come over, whether with your cell phone Mm -hmm. or through a copy machine to say, is this – you know, is this true to size? Do we have to? I'm not. I'm not messing with that. Put it by ruler. And, and this definition of weapon, when when you look at it, and that that is truly the black letter law you just reviewed. It's sort of like to me, it's the game of Clue a little bit. So when you look at the weapons in Clue, knife, revolver, okay, those are those are absolute weapons. But there's also the candlestick, right? And so part of it is what's it capable of doing. And so there are things that might be available in a school and used by a student in a way that turns something that's an ordinary object into more of a weapon. But wouldn't you call it, like, fine, we're going clue version here. If we went the candlestick route and a kid just took put a candlestick in his book bag, mm. we're not going to mm-hmm. discipline him for mm-hmm. having that candlestick. It's going to be how is he or she using that candlestick? Are they threatening it? Are mm-hmm. they waving it around? Have they bashed a few people with it in terms of, uh, you know, what are we looking at? Just in terms of general intent, I think is important for the weaponry conversation. Especially when you're distinguishing between mere possession, which can be a basis to invoke this exception. There, I want something that's very traditionally a weapon. If it's then actually being used, that's where I feel a lot more comfortable taking that expansive definition that the federal law has uh, and applying that. So a machete weapon, even if not being used. Candlestick, we're going to talk about how is it being used? What was the intent behind packing that? I need to go home and play Clue now. I mean, what were the other ones? We had rope. Rope. Revolver. Uh, Candlestick. The lead pipe. The lead pipe. Don't forget about that one. Classic. (laughs) So... Well, so let's let's switch over to drugs. Um, so here, here also, we do have some federal definitions. And the only thing I want to say about those is, so we have our uh, definitions and, and there's scheduled drugs on, in the federal law. Right now, under federal law, Schedule 1 does include marijuana. Um, that may change. And uh, until it does, we're operating under federal law idea, even though it's got state regs. We're operating under federal law, and marijuana is a Schedule One, which is the most serious uh, form of drug. Even though, let's say, a student comes to you and says, like, "Listen, I've been, you know, I've received my medical marijuana card, and here's my edibles. I have it for epilepsy. Let's say we're not going to talk about it for anxiety because I don't even know that that's allowable condition. I haven't researched the recent ones, um, but simply because they have a medical marijuana card, I don't think it 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 trumps, if you will, the federal law on this to say it's an illegal drug, right? It is a controlled substance. But what about, let's just say, do you count kids trying to sell Ritalin or Mm -hmm. Adderall? I mean, those aren't illegal drugs. But they are controlled substances, right? So that's where 
again, much like with weapons, this is a little bit mushy at times, but a prescribed medication is a controlled substance. And again, it goes to then a little bit about, well, what's, what's, what's being done with that to, to some extent. And I don't know how far we want to dive into uh, some really neat distinctions that might be made between the limits on illegal drugs versus controlled substances. Let's just say that there are significant limits here. And by the time you're looking at invoking the 45-day exception, you probably, I would encourage you, to have consulted with legal counsel. I love it. I just more legal counsel every day, all day. But that's, you have to say that. That's what we do. Which makes people want to give us serious bodily injury. <laughs> so when we talk about serious bodily injury, um, this also, similar to weaponry, right, refers over to a criminal code here. And I think when we talk about even with a phone call earlier, like some, you know, several lacerations. Well, I'm not certain that that necessarily would qualify as serious bodily injury under the federal regs because what happens is we look towards the criminal code and serious bodily injury has to involve one of four items, substantial risk of death, extreme physical pain, protracted and obvious disfigurement, or protracted loss or impairment of a function of a bodily member, organ, or mental faculty. So we always, not, not joke, but the level is, have you lost a limb? Have you lost an organ? Have you curtailed your level of living because of the amount of pain you're in? How many doctor's appointments have you had? Are you on medical pain um, pain pills? You know, not to go back to controlled substances, mm-hmm. but are, are mm-hmm. you taking ones under the advice and consent of your doctor to be able to control the pain that has happened from the injury that you sustained? I don't think few, a few lacerations is really going to cut it under serious bodily injury. Well, you found a case out of uh, Pennsylvania from 2016 that had the understatement of the year where it said there can be no question that serious bodily injury requires an acute impact on the victim. Well, that's what we're talking. Loss of the function of an organ, that sounds acute. Laceration, probably not. Probably not, but at least in the phone call example, we also had a knife. So, And it was being used as a weapon. So even if under two and a half inches... I don't care. We're now using it as a weapon. So in that example, you might actually be able to say, hey, it was a weapon. You have a 45-day exception. But again, that's always after you've gone through the process. So there was a case that came out of Texas um, with regard to a kiddo having a weapon on school grounds. You know, he had been identified um, under IDEA in categories of SLD and OHI for ADHD. So I guess in Texas, you can pick more than one. Fantastic for them. Um, and had at least struggles with regard to focus, staying on task, and impulsivity. So he had a weapon on school property, received an out-of-school suspension as the district, you know, walked through this process, and the parents fought it and said, hey, you know, we fought it, meaning the MDR decision, where the team said it was not a manifestation of this student's disability. And so I think what this case at least goes to show me is that they walked through that process and said, hey, this is not a manifestation of the student's disability. Parents said it was because the student was impulsive, grabbed the weapon, brought it to school. School was able to show on the other side of it that they did not believe it was. Where the case then confuses me a little bit is that they then also invoke the 45-day exception. And I don't know why they did that if they've gone through the MDR process. If you've gone through MDR process and it is not a manifestation, a student is disciplined just like a typical child. And so if a typical child who is not identified under IDEA 
has a weapon on school grounds, whatever you would do for them in those circumstances, you would do for this child. And so that this case loses me a little bit, but I think mm-hmm. it's at least a good lesson to learn in talking through exactly what clients call us for when they almost either try to skip the process or still think I can only do 45 days for these things. Yeah. And, you know, a challenge we have when we look at case law is that student privacy is really protected. So there there may be some nuances here that aren't captured in what we're able to review. Uh, I will say, and you've probably had circumstances like this, where there's a parent advocate or attorney involved, and I will kind of short circuit the process just in my conversations and say, hey, look, you know, we can get bogged down in this argument about whether this really is a manifestation or not. You know, we can we can go down that road and you know what your rights are. I know what ours are. At the end of the day, one of our rights is even if it is a manifestation, we've got 45 days. And sometimes that will lead to kind of an understanding. But boy, I, I wouldn't want that to happen without attorneys involved on each side having that kind of conversation. And if you, you do have that understanding, um, well, clearly they didn't in this case, or else they wouldn't have had a due process. Complaint. Well, and I think that's exactly it, because they found it in maybe, on, I don't know, I don't do Texas special education law, clearly. Uh, I am an Ohio lawyer, mm-hmm. as are you. And so I, I think that's just something to learn from this, right? As we always say, you know, let's learn from others, and not even mistakes of others, because clearly the hearing officer said everything was fine in this. They were allowed to discipline the kid. And so even if it wasn't a manifestation and they could have disciplined for more. They only went for 45 days, and the IHO said that was perfectly acceptable. So the, the school still was fine in the end, but I know in some of these moments when we have weaponry brought onto school grounds, we want more, mm-hmm. right? Our staff and students want to feel safe. 45 days doesn't often feel like enough on the other side of making sure that the security and safety of students and staff and, and all of these individuals in the building are taken into account. And, and well outside the, the scope of this particular episode, if there's something particularly serious, there may be law enforcement involved as well. And you know that, that invokes a whole new set of uh, concerns and opportunities. And certainly, again, something where you are probably on the phone with your attorney when that happens. But that can allow for some of that safety, like real safety, and also perception of safety, because not just the, the staff and the students, but the community at large may be well aware of a higher uh, profile incident. And sometimes that juvenile justice process can be another way to achieve that safety or to, to, to work on that safety concern. And it's something to be engaged in. It's difficult, right? I mean, you and I have both been shut out of juvenile uh, uh, proceedings because the courts are understandably protective of the privacy of those students. But if you have a good relationship with the prosecutor's office and you are appropriately compliant with subpoena requests for records, which we do want subpoenas, of course, that can be a way to get into that courtroom and accomplish some of these same goals. If you're restricted to the 45 days because it's a manifestation, you may still achieve a little bit more of restrictions on how that child served. Again, that's a separate podcast episode, I think. Absolutely. But I do think if we look at this from the broad level perspective, what we're also pointing out as we go through or just sort of recapping, you're talking practical tips, yep. right? And that's what I love best is being able to say, okay, high level, 10,000 foot view, MDRs and exceptions. What are the top things we need to remember as we go through this? One, you just hit on it. Don't forget, you can still re- 
report a crime, mm-hmm. right? If there are crimes happening, we can still report them. I think at times we have to be careful when a, and maybe a staff member feels assaulted, but it's not serious bodily injury, how far down each of those paths we go. I think also, though, as we hit on very early on in this podcast, the exceptions are the backstop. They are not to be used and shouldn't be used at the front end of this unless there's sort of attorney mutual understanding as we go through. But use them as the backstop for what they are. And that if you do go through that MDR, right, we've had the MDR, we have our decision, we then have the exceptions, making sure that we've documented that discussion. Yeah, and and to do all of those steps right, the foundation of everything is that training of our staff to make sure they know and they have the confidence. And sometimes having that confidence, depending on the size of your district, that may mean if we're talking about potentially invoking a 45-day exception, we're going to have that student service director in that meeting. You know, we've done the triage and not to make a, no pun intended with a serious bodily injury, but we've, we've done the triage and this is one where you need to know. And the t- that's part of the training for the team is let me know if we've got drugs, weapons, injuries. So, uh, you know, with that, um, as, as we've discussed in prior discipline podcasts, there are lots of opportunities. I really do see this as an area where we have uh, a lot of control over compliance and getting things right with that training. A- any other final thoughts as we wrap this up? No, I don't think so. I mean, I do think it making sure it's not just the special ed staff that understand this. There's always that principal, that assistant principal, who've taken a class or two on special education law. And I don't mean to downplay it. I really don't. They are incredibly important people who do incredible work that everyone has a skill set. I do not have that skill set. So uh, let's recognize that to begin with. But who have we've heard the 45-day exception, so we, we just have it. Making sure the full picture of student discipline is understood. That includes the MDR process. That includes the exceptions and when to use them. That it's not just this thing we slap out on the front end. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us. A quick note, this podcast is intended to be used for general information only and is not legal advice. If you have a specific question, please consult an attorney. Be sure to check out other episodes at ennisbritton.com or wherever you find your podcasts. If you have a topic you would like to suggest, a question about today's episode, or anything else you'd like to share, please email us at podcast at ennisbritton.com. Whether by phone or this podcast, we look forward to being on the call with you again soon.